Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots-on-the-ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Over the last few years, we have noticed an increase in the number of questions regarding democracy, its institutions, civic responsibility, and how all of this interacts and meshes. The Jackson Center's program theme this year is Democracy on Trial, and we are focused on the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions, both here in the United States and globally. These are not new questions. And Robert H. Jackson wrote and spoke on democracy during his tenures as the United States Attorney General, as a U.S. Supreme Court Justice, and as the Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. During the course of this year, we are convening conversations about democracy, U.S. and global institutions, voting rights, war, the U.S. Supreme Court, and more. This year, there will be only one tea time per month on the fourth Thursday. And we hope that each of these programs inspires you to have conversations with your family, friends, and colleagues, and to seek out ways to add your voice or to make change. And for those of you watching this live, remember you can ask your questions at any time in the Facebook chat. Today, I am excited to welcome back David Crane as our Tea Time guest. Professor Crane was the founding chief prosecutor for the UN Special Court for Sierra Leone. He also is the founder of the Global Accountability Network, a group of international criminal prosecutors and practitioners who supervise law students working on specific atrocity projects. Syria, Yemen, Venezuela, and now a Ukraine task force established on the day Russia invaded Ukraine. GAN lawyers collaborate with local partners in each conflict region to determine research aims and priorities, and the law students assigned to each project then engage in open source investigations, research, and legal analysis regarding alleged war crimes and or crimes against humanity. And the ultimate goal of each project is to gather evidence that can one day help to form the basis for a criminal prosecution. And I suspect some of that might come up in our conversation today. And finally, David also served as the chair of the Jackson Center Board. So David, thank you for joining me for tea again. It's great to be here this afternoon. I want to start, as you and I were, were talking about setting, uh, setting this up, that the, the body of law that governs war crimes, crimes against humanity is probably not top of mind for, for most people. And so I wonder, I think we should start with what are some of the laws of armed conflict 
that are implicated. And obviously at the moment I'm speaking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so what are some of the laws that, that, that are going to potentially govern this situation? It's great to be here again this afternoon and to, to chat with you about this very, very important topic. And that is a lawless conflict in the 21st century, something that we never really contemplated. There is, the, there is law that governs conflict. And it's been around historically for centuries, but it has been codified through treaty protocol and agreements uh, that now form the basis of what we call the laws of armed conflict. And fundamentally, it's protecting those persons and places found on the battlefield, uh, such as wounded, sick, prisoners of war, uh, as well as civilians. And then there is also a body of law in the laws of armed conflict that, that govern uh, weapons and targets. In other words, what kind of weapon systems you can use and what you can target also is governed by, by law. And those who violate those principles are actually committing a war crime. So, you know, you hear war crimes thrown around quite a bit, but when one says war crimes, you're actually violating uh, the laws of armed conflict. And so the fundamental principle of the laws of armed conflict is to govern the horror of war and to ensure that we minimize that horror and, uh, and that we do that by, by using the law to do so. One of the fundamental principles of the laws of armed conflict is you don't intentionally target civilians. And this is the cornerstone by which Vladimir Putin and his commanders are and will be held accountable uh, for the intentional targeting of civilians. You just don't do it. That is, that is the bedrock principle because, again, civilians are to be especially protected according to the language of the Geneva Conventions. So when you, when you see the horror uh, in front of your eyes on television, every time a Russian tank fires on an apartment building for no apparent reason other than to shoot at the, tar at the apartment building or gun down Ukrainians standing in a bread line, uh, that is uh, fundamentally wrong. It's a violation of international law specifically. Of the laws of armed conflict. So I think it's important uh, for our uh, listeners uh, today and as they watch the events unfold in front of them on TV, this is textbook violations of the laws of armed conflict. Putin has resorted to the old days of the Soviet Union, where they ground their way from Moscow all the way across to Berlin uh, using uh, an incredible firepower, usually artillery, and just rape, pillage, and plunder all the way across Eastern Europe before they stopped at Berlin. This was done in, in, in the dark ages. And that is, in other words, just uh, you know, wanton uh, use of, of force without any kind of limits. And I never thought, frankly, I never thought someone who's been doing this a long time, uh, prosecuting individuals who commit a violate international law is that I, I would see in the 2022, this kind of dark age lawless conflict in Europe which uh, I just I just never thought it would happen. Yeah, you know, I think for our listeners, and they have heard you talk about crimes against humanity in the past as well, which we're also hearing some of those conversations that it's not just it's not just the war crimes and the crime of aggressive war, which might also be helpful to have you define for our audience just to be on the safe side. But you know, I think the stories that we're hearing about as you mentioned, attacking the bread lines, about attacking some of the escape routes or the evacuation routes, that all of this is playing into how the world community is going to potentially move forward with this. Let's start with the, the definition of, or what does it mean, this aggressive war? What do we mean by that concept? 
Well, they, you know, just the fundamental idea is that in, uh, in our international order, our world order under the UN paradigm, nations just don't attack other nations for no legal basis. And doing so is aggressive and is now an international crime under the Rome statute uh, that created the International Criminal Court. Of course, we all remember uh, Robert Jackson uh, actually uh, used the concept of crimes against peace, which is aggressive war done by, the, by Germany, to, uh, to charge them for, uh, for their acts related to their movement uh, in the East and the West, taking over all of Europe. So aggressive warfare uh, is an international crime. It should be held accountable. It is a political type of international crime, which means uh, there's, there's a little bit of political stickiness. But in the Ukraine, Russia invading Ukraine, there's no, there's no doubt. Uh, there's no legal basis. Uh, in fact, the absurd uh, basis by which Putin uh, uh, justifying uh, this aggressive act is, is not even worthy of comment. There, there just isn't. So this is textbook aggressive warfare, which is outlawed in, in the modern era. Now, you alluded to another uh, international crime, and actually there's four international crimes, just footnoting. You know, there is war crimes. There is uh, the crime of aggression. Uh, there's genocide. And then there is crimes against humanity, which is also being committed. So we have three international crimes that we can uh, we can show and prove and actually have the data now to do so. And that is uh, aggressive war, uh, war crimes, and then crimes against humanity. And that is a widespread or systematic attack on civilians, period. And that doesn't you don't have to have conflict for that to happen. And so if a future prosecutor uh, looking at Putin's act and his commander's acts uh, would charge the particular circumstance, a charge, for example, they would charge in both the act as both a war crime and in the alternative, a crime against humanity, which I did in, in West Africa when I was chief prosecutor uh, there. Uh, we charge in the alternative because sometimes when you're in court, uh, the facts may uh, bear out that it really wasn't a war crime, but it was a crime against humanity for whatever factual reason. And so the trier fact can uh, find uh, the defendant guilty of the crime against humanity and not the war crime, but the gravamen of the offense is still upheld. So that's how we're looking at all of this. In fact, we're doing this right now, and we're building a crime-based matrix against Vladimir Putin for those crimes, of which we will hand over to our clients, the International Criminal Court, uh, the United Nations, uh, Human Rights Council, uh, as well as various nations that have an interest in our work. So that in the hopes that a future uh, local, regional, or international prosecutor can use it. And of course, I'll underscore international prosecutor because I can I can really look uh, your listeners in the eye or, or today saying that, the, that there will be uh, international criminal action taken against Putin and his commanders this year. Well, and before we get to some of those paths, I would love for you, you know, you say that evidence is being gathered and working through that. And so we'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that looks like, how that's being done. So our audience understands that that preservation of evidence more or less in real time at this point for, for how, how we move forward with this type of prosecution in the modern era. Well, you know, in our day, uh, age of social media and the interconnectivity of everybody in the world everywhere and the ability to literally watch international crimes committed as they happen, seem to think that we, you know, we've got this guy already. Uh, he's done. And in some ways that's true, but it's important for our colleagues to understand is, is that uh, the rules of procedure and evidence still apply. And so even though you have 
literally petrobytes of data, you still have to put that data, turn it into criminal information, which then can be used potentially as evidence. You know, you have to have a foundation. You have to have relevancy still. So, you know, when I was uh, doing uh, our work in, in West Africa, building a case against uh, President Charles Taylor, the president of Liberia and his henchmen, and it's the blood diamond story. You know, I had, to, I had to do it the old fashioned way. Get out there and collect evidence like you would think that would happen. Uh, you know, just talking to people, looking at things, touching things seizing things and building your case that way, uh, each and every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt kind of thing. But now, just literally 20 years later, we have so much data that ends up happening is, is that it actually gets in the way. Uh, you know, the impression is, is that we've, you know, we've got all this, all this stuff, and it literally is stuff. There's no, there's no basis to take it in the court right now, but we, that's what we're doing. But, uh, you know, social media and all of the stuff that's now on the Internet, moving back and forth, the videos, everything, the interviews, the live testimony, et cetera, that we're watching. Yeah, it's important. And yes, we're going to use it. But then you have to be able to go into court as a prosecutor like you would do here, uh, you know, in Chautauqua County or anywhere else our, our listeners are, are, are watching. You still have to go in and, and go before a trier of fact and prove to them this is authentic, a foundation, and it's, it's authentic. So that's a, that is the challenge. So in some ways, we have the tsunami of data and information of which we have to choose almost like a needle in a haystack kind of scenario. So that's become an interesting challenge that we didn't really have to face when I was proving uh, the case against Charles Taylor, the president of Liberia, and his henchmen for war crimes and crimes against humanity. But it can be done, and it is being done. The challenge is, is politicians and diplomats just automatically, and, and, and really rightfully, uh, your listeners rightfully saying, well, you know, my God, look at all this stuff. It's just a matter of, of going into court and showing the films. Well, that's really not true. It has to be, uh, this is again, a court of law, and these aren't kangaroo courts, and we have, uh, a, a, we have to have a legal basis by which going into court and showing just like any evidence anywhere that it is uh, relevant and there's a strong foundation for it to be admitted to prove uh, the prosecutor's case. And even to this day, politicians and diplomats at the UN think, well, again, you know, we've got this guy and it's a matter of just bundling it all together and walking in the court. And, and in reality, that's not quite the case. But we have a very solid case against Vladimir Putin for the crime of aggression, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And again, I've mentioned our, our crime-based matrix and our conflict map. We'll take your questions and your comment and move that forward a little bit. That's how we prove beyond a reasonable doubt each and every element of the crimes of war crimes, crimes against humanity uh, and the crime of aggression, just like a prosecutor would do in the United States or elsewhere in any domestic jurisdiction. How you do that is uh, like we did in, in, in West Africa, and uh, it was uh, in kind of a first ever kind of thing. I mean, we were just developing these things just 20, 25 years ago. And that's built a crime-based matrix, and that is date, time, location, alleged act, potentially who did it, which unit, which person, which commander. And then as you go across that line, there would also be uh, citations to violations of, uh, of international law, the uh, international humanitarian law, uh, such as the laws of armed conflict, the Rome statute. And we're also, and as we do in the Global Accountability Network, we also take the domestic law and we cite that as well. And so, uh, for example, we started the Ukrainian task force the day of the, because we saw it coming. So the day they came across, we started collecting uh, data and turning it into criminal information and then putting it on 
our crime-based matrix. We also have a team that is also writing a narrative called uh, Conflict Map of the crimes that are being committed so that a future uh, prosecutor can read through that and get a sense of the gravamen of what, what happened in the Ukraine. And we did this in West Africa as well. Plus, we also have criminal information analysts to look for trends and look at the types and methodologies of what kind of crimes they were committing, uh, for what reason, et cetera, which helps when you're explaining to a trier of fact in court, uh, you know, really what were they thinking kind of thing. And so it was very, very helpful. And again, these are tried and true methods. This isn't something that we're inventing like we did 25 years ago. We've already been there and done that, and we're pretty good at it now. And so the Global Accountability Network, which is made up of over a dozen universities and other organizations and uh, several hundred uh, uh, law students and graduate students working very hard, taking data, uh, turning it into criminal formation, both from open source as well as clandestine sources as we can get them, uh, and, and, and putting together a fairly strong case, even as we speak, against Vladimir Putin and, uh, and, and his commanders. Another footnote, how do we hold Vladimir Putin accountable? He's not there. He's in Moscow. Commanders are, are committing, uh, you know, they're, they're intentionally targeting civilians. Well, again, we have this concept in the laws of armed conflict called command responsibility. In other words, commanders are absolutely responsible for the conduct of their soldiers, to include heads of state who are also commanders in chief of their armed forces. You know, the president of the United States, by our constitution, is the commander in chief of our armed forces. So he is part of the chain of command. Well, Vladimir Putin, as president of the Russian Federation, is also part of the chain of command. He is, as that commander, directing his commanders to do what they are doing. So, you know, we can easily charge Vladimir Putin, president of the, of the, uh, of the Federation, for his, his conduct, but also his commanders, all the way down to, to include the individual soldier who is actually pulling the trigger. There is no defense of superior orders. A lot of people think, well, you know, I was ordered to, and so therefore I just was following orders. Uh, that does not hold water, and uh, that defense went out the window. They tried to use it at Nuremberg, for example, and, and, and the International Military Tribunal said, no, there is no uh, defense of superior orders. In fact, we train our armed forces to question potentially law unlawful directions to avoid uh, a war crime and not to, in fact, do what you're ordered to do if, in fact, it ends up being a questionable act such as a war crime. And this all stems from, uh, from the My Lai Massacre back in the Vietnam era, where the uh, United States said never again, and really created a dynamic and very, very efficient concept called the DOD Law of War Program, of which I was a part of developing, where we ensure, uh, and our NATO partners do this as well, but ensure all of our armed forces are trained in the laws of armed conflict on an annual basis, from generals down to privates, as well as are trained in the particular mission that they're about to deploy on, as they deploy. And so there are judge advocates all the way down to task force and brigade level advising commanders on uh, the lawfulness of, of what they are doing. And we're very, very proud of that. So I think it's really important that we have a, a sophisticated system to do this, to, uh, to go after people who commit these crimes, such as war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and, and the crime of aggression. And we have a, a, a tried and true methodology by which we build our cases against these individuals, such as Putin, Charles Taylor, Milosevic, what have you, uh, these heads of state that are thinking about or have committed international crimes. 
We have a question from one of our observers. It's following on your your confidence that Putin will be brought to justice sometime this year. And And the question is, I think comparing it to Syria, there was similar evidence and yet nothing was done to help. Nothing has been done thus far to hold Assad or Putin to account for that. So what gives you confidence that something will happen in the international community so quickly? Well, again, uh, we may not have Putin in the dock, but we'll certainly have a tribunal up and running. And of course, the International Criminal Court has already opened a preliminary investigation, but uh, another international tribunal as well working to uh, related to the crime of aggression. I believe you know that's going to happen. But modern international criminal law is a creature of political events. The bright red thread of all of this is politics. Now, we've got the law now, but really politics do play a part. If they're, you know, in other words, we can prosecute these individuals. Trust me, I've been there, done that. But we, there has to be a political will to create the tribunal, but also a political will to hand over whomever has committed these international crimes to that court or tribunal. There is no, there was no political will at the time to do something about Assad. I am frankly, and having been, uh, you know, uh, the Syrian Accountability Project, part of the Global Accountability Network, has a strong case against Assad and his henchmen. And so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't walk away from Syria just yet. Uh, it will be a political moment and a political condition by which we'll be able to have Assad handed over for a fair and open trial. And that's what will happen with, uh, with Vladimir Putin. It'll be a political decision by the international community. Now, the reason why Syria didn't happen is because uh, most of this action takes place in the Security Council. China and Russia are permanent members. So Russia and China just blocked any action related to referring to the case to the International Criminal Court related to Syria. The situation in, um, in, in, in Ukraine, same international crimes, is there's just a flat political will to do something about this to include prosecuting Vladimir Putin and his commanders for what, what they are doing. And this, this political will was, was uh, underscored uh, loudly uh, a little over a week ago when over 141 members of the United Nations came together, the General Assembly, and condemned what was going on. That is almost unprecedented. And that is the political cornerstone now by which we will develop a justice mechanism, serious justice mechanisms uh, to prosecute Putin and his henchmen. So there's the difference right there. We were politically blocked from doing anything in Syria by Russia, ironically. But now that Russia has become a, a, a major human rights violator and aggressor, the international community, probably much to the shock of Vladimir Putin and uh, and his lapdog, the foreign minister, I think they did not expect this. And now the world is united in facing down this aggression, which is a real, you know, there's, if there's a silver lining in this dark cloud is that the, wor- the world, democracies and non-democracies have come together shoulder to shoulder and said the United Nations paradigm of settling our disputes peacefully and resorting only to the use of force as a last resort still stands and we're not moving away from that. And those who do that, like Vladimir Putin's Russia, will be held accountable. So this, this, this is the difference between Syria and the Ukraine, the difference between uh, Syria uh, and the Uyghurs. I mean, the, the, the political will over the past several years uh, in what I call the age of the strong man uh, has waned. Uh, atrocity accountability 
there's been very little political will. The strongmen have run amok. One of the ultimate strongmen, Vladimir Putin, uh, thought he'd get away with this. And in fact, he hasn't. So he's miscalculated terribly. And once you mention him as a war criminal, then there's very little you can back away from that. You can't say, well, maybe he wasn't, maybe he isn't, because we do have such a strong case building against him. And so it was a politically calculated statement by both the President of the United States, as well as the Secretary of State, to announce to the world that we are going to go after Vladimir Putin as a war criminal and with no statute limitations. He doesn't even have to be present when he's indicted. I did this with President Charles Taylor. They didn't hand it over to us for a fair and open trial for two years, but we indicted him. He was an indicted war criminal, which means he has no political legitimacy in the United Nations paradigm of the world. And so now he is an outlaw forever. And this is really a significant thing. Now we're, we're in for a penny and for a pound now, but I am incredibly confident in our ability to use the law, not guns, but the law to take this guy down. Charles Taylor never thought he'd be held accountable. And now he is sitting in a maximum security prison in the United Kingdom for the rest of his life. So it can be done. We've done it. It's only, it's only happened once before, but we now have the ability to do it legitimately, ethically, and legally. Well, and let's talk about some of the paths to justice, because there are some opportunities and some challenges um, which, with each of those. You know, you have already mentioned the International Criminal Court and Chief Prosecutor Kareem Khan has opened an investigation into this. What are some of the challenges with that being the route that proceeds? And, and what do you think the likelihood is that that will be the, the path forward? Well, again, uh, you know, this is these are legal proceedings uh, with with legal procedures, and so uh, I think our listeners can understand that. Again, these aren't kangaroo courts, so we have to use the law and ethics to do this properly, so that the world can understand that the rule of law is more powerful than the rule of the gun. There are four ways we can uh, deal with this uh, ongoing atrocity uh, at the Ukraine. Uh, the first one is uh, the world's permanent criminal court, the International Criminal Court, which has, and I don't want to go too far into as a law lecture on jurisdiction, but just to kind of let you understand kind of the four corners of what's going on. The International Criminal Court does have jurisdiction over the war crimes and crimes against humanity happening in, in Ukraine. And that's based on that Ukraine has, even though it's not a signatory to the Rome statute, has submitted its jurisdiction, which can be done under the statute for those crimes. And so the International Criminal Court, because Ukraine has referred this and submitted itself to the jurisdiction of the court, does have jurisdiction to investigate the war crimes and crimes against humanity. And like I alluded to, Green Khan uh, is, in fact, uh, open a preliminary investigation under the, the rules of procedure uh, to, uh, to start investigating. He's doing that. And he will complete his or he will do his work and be ready to do what he needs to do. And at the appropriate time, time is not a factor in international criminal law, though, you know, sometimes you have to seize the political moment. Right. I was going to say sometimes the political will shifts. So as, as, as we saw, as the Nuremberg trials continued and continued and continued. At a certain point, the the world sort of thinks, shouldn't we move on? Or you know, something else happens that captures the the zeitgeist. So yes, understanding this is the moment. Well, yeah, yeah, right. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, and then that there is a political will to do this. And as we all know, though, uh, that can that can shift and move based on circumstance. So uh, I'm you know very much pushing uh, for a an appropriate uh, ethical 
uh, result here. And this is where as we move into our second option, the second option would be creating under the UN General Assembly, because we can't do it with the Security Council because Russia would veto it, taking that political support with that resolution condemning the aggression, 141 nations stepping forward with only five opposed, and, and taking that uh, giving uh, the UN Secretary General to enter into talks with the government of Ukraine to create a, an, a hybrid international uh, tribunal like the tribunal in West Africa, which I created, called the Special Court for Ukraine, where that would have the jurisdiction to prosecute the crime of aggression because the International Criminal Court does not have that jurisdiction because of a kind of a unique carve-out related to, you can only try somebody with crime of aggression if they have if they are part of the Rome Statute and Russia is not. So we're going to have to create a court to deal with that aggression, which started this all. And so we're going to do that. And that's what we're very much involved with now, uh, with the Global Accountability Network and, and, and just my personal involvement with, with many others putting this together. Because again, uh, uh, I was the person, that, I'm the only person who ever started the first one. And that was uh, the... the hybrid international court for, for Sierra Leone. So uh, yeah, I'm taking the plan that I used to create that and, and working with people to uh, start the process by which we hopefully will uh, we'll, we'll create the special court for Ukraine. A third option, uh, and this is where the International Military Tribunal comes in, we could, because there's historical precedent, a group of, of concerned states could literally come together uh, and create a regional court that is happening under the auspices of the European Union, uh, NATO, or what have you, and create a court that would uh, prosecute, well, they could prosecute any of the crimes, but uh, mainly uh, the crime of aggression. So that would be a third option. I think that's uh, more politically fraught because what you want is to have the world support this new court, not just a regional group of NATO members, what have you. You want the whole world to stand together to let all strong men around the world. They sit around like crocodiles watching this, seeing what happens, how we react to this. And I don't think they're happy right now. And so if we move forward quickly, ethically, and legally to create a special court for Ukraine, they're going to be put on notice that if you have aggressive acts, the world is going to deal with you. And uh, so I think this will be a great deterrent. That's why I'm, and I, I honestly believe this, because we've already done this before. We've already got the blueprint, just a, a factor of and we have the political will, and that is just sitting down and, and putting together the, the international framework by which we create the special court for Ukraine. So that's, that's your third option. Your fourth option is the domestic route. And we're already seeing that. We're seeing a NATO member countries under their own domestic jurisdictional statutes starting to investigate the crimes that are going on, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression uh, under their domestic law. And that would be a fourth option. The challenge with the fourth option is, is that each state does it differently under different procedures. And so the timeframes are off, uh, the law is different. And I just don't think that that sends the appropriate signal. The second option really, uh, this the real strong shoulder to shoulder worldwide general assembly condemnation of the aggression is really the signal we wanna send to all of strong men around the world now and forever that uh, you know, aggression uh, will not stand. So those are the four options related to what's going on. Right now, uh, the ICC is appropriately moving forward, which is good, as well as there is now a, a, a concerted effort now to put together, probably called the Special Court for Ukraine, though the, the name isn't, I'm using it uh, as an example, but that would probably be something that they would use. 
It also sounds, at least in this particular instance, given President Putin's general thought process about NATO and the EU in general, that having it be more of that second or either the ICC or the UN General Assembly putting this together would also hopefully mitigate some of the propaganda that we understand is is occurring in Russia, that this is, you know, sort of a NATO plot against Russia or an EU plot against Russia or a United States plot against Russia. So to have that world community, that much broader 140 plus community or country stand together on that would help hopefully mitigate some of, of that belief, whereas if it does come to, down to the EU or to NATO, that feels like something that could be spun, at least in, internally in Russia, as further evidence as to either why they had the right of it or that this is not a legitimate decision. You're exactly correct. Uh, if we do the third option and and then come together as a group of concerned states, that kind of slides into propaganda swamp that Russia can use saying well, all they're doing is just this is just another way of, of attacking Russia using uh, the law as opposed to weapon systems uh, to attack us. And uh, you know he may have a legitimate point there. What we want to do is let the world know that the, world, the rule of law is more powerful than the rule of the gun. And the world as one stands up and says, no, we're going to hold you accountable. He has no answer for that. And I think uh, he's quite, uh, quite apprehensive about this because he knows now there's no going back. You know, he's in a lose-lose situation anyway. He's losing in Ukraine. He's starting to lose politically in Russia. Uh, he has now been branded uh, politically a war criminal. Uh, there's no, there's real no off-ramp for him anymore. Legally, politically, and practically, he's done. You had made a point, and I think this was in your testimony before the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, that the United States has really taken a lead role in a lot of these international tribunals. And just yesterday, the Biden administration formally declared these to be war crimes, which was something the, the administration had uh, sort of been fuzzy about up until, up until that point, although President Biden himself uh, had said it. If we go the route, if it goes the route of the ICC, because the United States is also not a signatory to Rome or, or uh, to, the, to the ICC, what role would the United States play, if any? We have to understand the U.S. has been a center point in the creation of all the modern era international criminal courts and tribunals, starting at Nuremberg, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, the International Criminal Court the various domestic uh, efforts, the mechanisms, the United States has uh, stood up and clearly stated that the rule of law is more powerful than the rule of the gun and has been a cornerstone impetus, a political impetus to get the world to step forward to do something about an atrocity. So we have a valid long-term record related to atrocity accountability. Are we perfect? Of course not. But in my testimony before the Human Rights Commission and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I really urge that the U.S., in fact, show that leadership, that four-cornerstone leadership, to bring the world together and collectively uh, create support for the International Criminal Court, uh, which, we, which we can do. There's certain things that we can do, morally support it, where we can provide data and information and, and evidence where it's appropriate, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we're not uh, totally, this isn't uh, the last administration which uh, basically banned the International Criminal Court 
uh, from the United States and its personnel, which is a horrific signal. Uh, that Those days are over. We're going to see the United States support the International Criminal Court where it can. I don't see the United States signing on to the system, even though it helped develop it uh, as, a, as a signatory uh, anytime soon or if ever. But it will do the practical things that are necessary. Because again, the U.S. really understands that the world wants to do this. And it's important that the U.S. help morally in, in doing that. And it's also very, very critical that the U.S. Uh, provide leadership in creating what I call the special court for Ukraine, which they did the special court for Sierra Leone. Uh, and again, we have the experienced diplomats and, and lawyers to, to make that happen. And, and, and you're going to be seeing that. That's not something that's just a theory. Uh, the U.S. is going to lead on this and to, uh, and to help build uh, uh, this, new, uh, this new court so that we can get on with it. Because uh, I think it's critical that once we develop a, a solid case against Vladimir Putin and his commanders, that we do indict him for aggression as appropriate and as soon as appropriate. Uh, because, again, that is just another way by which we can uh, show the Russian people, as importantly as the world, that they've gone down the wrong direction and hopefully then create political circumstances by which we may have some type of regime change and then having handed over to us appropriately. We have a question from uh, your friend Hans, who is hoping you can explain why the special court for Sierra Leone is the best model for a special court for the prosecution against aggression against Ukraine. Hans Carell is one of the, uh, is the fathers of modern international criminal law. And he, among a couple of others of, of us, created the special court for Sierra Leone. If there's any one individual in the world who knows uh, the importance of a hybrid international war crimes tribunal. Uh, it is my good friend Hans. Uh, but really, it's important to understand that what we want to do is an efficient and effective type of justice mechanism by which then we can show the world that we can deliver what is necessary under our mandate, an efficient way of doing this. It's expensive, but it can be done. And when uh, the decision was being considered for a type of new court, a hybrid international war crimes court. You know, the two other current uh, tribunals at the time, Rwanda and uh, uh, Yugoslavia, were horribly expensive, coming in at $130 million each per year. Personally, I developed a system by which we uh, it cost the world about 20 to $25 million uh, as opposed to uh, the, the, the monies that were being spent. There was a lot of frustration. Can we do this more effectively and efficiently? and quickly as appropriately. And so that's why I think Hans is alluding to is the model is one where, one is we've done it, two, it's efficient, three, it's effective, and four, it can be done as quickly as possible so that we can start moving forward and, and, and sending signals to the Russian people as well as to Putin that you know the world is moving forward to hold him accountable for the aggression, and as well as our good friends at the International Criminal Court. But, uh, but really, the person who really asked the question is the guy that actually uh, created the courts. And so my hat, I tip my hat uh, to this, uh, this incredible gentleman who, who was on the ground floor at, uh, in Yugoslavia and Rwanda and uh, Sierra Leone and the International Criminal Court, as well as uh, Cambodia. This is the one gentleman that I would, would honor by just saying that this is the man who, uh, who helped create all of them. So thank you for your question, Hans. 
Well, and I think part of the political will discussion at this time too might also be the finances, as you mentioned. So we have talked in the past that many of these courts also have the task of trying to find the funding to continue to work. And so this, the political will in this particular instance and standing up the special court for Ukraine, as you have so titled it, that's also a factor in terms of the political will and seizing the moment. What well, is? Uh, and again, we have to live in the real world. Uh, politicians and diplomats create these things out of political concern or drive, what have you. But, you know, the reality is you have to do it efficiently, effective, using a management plan, a, st- a strategic plan, which I used, which I could show at any one given time how the money was being spent for what and when. And uh, this was very, very effective. And we can do this uh, for the Ukraine. But again, as you know, anything, and as I was developing a milestone chart for a couple of key individuals who are working on this creation of the special court for Ukraine, I think the funding would be, and, and, and I think it's quickest this way, as opposed to the, to, uh, the, the administrative burden of, uh, of contributions from the United Nations uh, uh, mandated contributions. We do voluntary contributions like we did with, uh, with Sierra Leone. There is a political will to, to do that. Uh, so that it could be set up. And so it'd be a, a man, the mandate would be uh, to prosecute those who bear the greatest responsibility for the aggression in the Ukraine with voluntary funding, uh, with its headquarters initially in New York, and then moving forward to an appropriate headquarters, say, in, in, in maybe Warsaw, Poland, or somewhere f- more forward thinking with a field office in the Ukraine, and then maybe eventually over time, moving it to to Kiev, Kiev, if there's a uh, you know there's a political or military ability to do so, uh, but money is important. It's the one thing that you always had to worry about uh, as a chief prosecutor is is where the next money is coming from. But I think because of the gravity of the, even though the situation in in West Africa was incredibly grave, uh, there was the murder, rape, maiming, and mutilation of over 1.2 million human beings. It's just that the you know and there was a political will to do something about that, but that waned quickly. And it was very, very difficult. Whereas I think in the Ukraine, the magnitude of it all, I think we'll see this sustained ability to provide voluntary funding to do something about the aggression in the Ukraine. And of course, the state's parties of the Rome Statute will be supporting the International Criminal Court and its important work as well. Well, and to your point, you mentioned that the Special Court for Sierra Leone was 20 or so years ago. And so even the reporting of the atrocities and everything at the time was not anywhere near the real time that we're seeing for for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so some of that immediacy, some of that that gut punch of of those pictures and those videos were tempered just both by distance and by time lag. And so I think that that's also potentially a factor here for how the world is reacting. Oh, it has. It, it fundamentally changed. Uh, you know, when we were in West Africa, you know, there was no such thing as an iPhone. That really wasn't that long ago. That was 2002, 2005. I mean, you know, we we didn't even have laptops. Uh, they were not the thing as well. But there was no such thing as a as an iPhone. That happened a couple of years later from that. But that's fundamentally changed. And we really see. I think this is important. During the Green Revolution in, in Iran, uh, during a presidential uh, election, there was quite a bit of protest because the uh, the election was not. Uh, fair. And so people took to the streets. And there was one young woman who was uh, was protesting, uh, was shot through the heart by the Republican guards, and she fell back and uh, into the street and bled out. Well, it just so happened that someone with a new iPhone, I think this is 2007, actually filmed it. And it's the first time 
And within 30 minutes, uh, CNN was airing it uh, to the world. Uh, and we saw in real time a crime being uh, taking place. And, you know, and this was literally and figuratively the opening shot to the beginning of social media and atrocity. So, yes, the world didn't know much about uh, that little dark corner of the world, West Africa, uh, and for 10 years. The only, the only coverage, if there was any, and, and a lot of reporters were either killed or fled, was uh, BBC from time to time would come in and flee, what have you. But there was very little, very little videography. Uh, so the world really didn't. So you make a good point, uh, Kristen, and that just it, is that like in any atrocity in the 20th century, you know, the world knew very little about what was going on. And of course, social media now has, has turned that completely on its head. And as atrocities... I hate that I'm about to say this, but as atrocities continue in some of those darker corners of the world, this may also be a game changer for that, for for creating the world appetite for prosecuting those crimes in what have been traditionally relatively forgotten or ignored places. Um, you mentioned uh, sort of at the stop, uh, China's treatment of the Uyghurs, and obviously we are all aware, I think, of multiple conflicts going on uh, in Africa that certainly there have been many news reports saying they're not getting nearly the coverage that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, and that may change going forward too. Well, yeah, kind of, it's, yeah, I I don't disagree with it, but there's a, there's a subtlety here that that we have to be very careful. The most powerful weapon in the world is the television clicker. And, you know, if you keep showing atrocity too much, they get numb and they change the channel to whatever, TV program they so choose. So you have to be very, very careful here. The world does become numb to the horror. And we, uh, we saw that in Sierra Leone, and we've seen it elsewhere as well. People just look away. And so there's a, there's a challenge there. And also we have to understand there's a bit of a, there's a north-south or racial issue here too. And we have to be honest with this. And I think it's important for your listeners to understand this is the concept of colonialism is still a raw wound in, 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 uh, in Africa, for example, but in South Asia, Southeast Asia, what have you. Uh, and Europe is looked upon as, uh, as with sus- suspicion. Uh, uh, and you have to be very, very mindful of that, you know, because modern international criminal law, frankly, is white man's justice. It is a European-based system of justice that, uh, that, people in other parts of the world just may not buy off on, or at least we'll be suspicious about. And so we have to be very careful because we have to be intellectually honest and humble enough to ask, is the justice we seek, Western, you know, the West, the justice they want the rest of the world? Uh, and we have, to be, we have to be able to answer that question uh, so that we can make sure that we do our mandate, but that we're doing it in a way that uh, the people that we are helping and assisting and seeking justice for actually understand what you are doing. And, and I, I drifted slightly, but, but the problem with, with immediate access to all the horrors in the world simultaneously, yes, that is helpful. That is, can be used and constructed to build political will. We're seeing that very much in, in the Ukraine, but we have to be very, very careful because the world uh, either consciously or subconsciously comes numb to it or just changes the channel. So there's always that, uh, that factor that you just have to understand. But the nice thing about this is, is we have such a core of long-term experienced professionals who have done this 
they have seen this, done that, uh, understood this, that we'll be able to craft justice mechanisms now and into the future in a way that are that are efficient and effective that take in uh, the cultural concept of justice as well as the practical and, and, and the ethical aspect of justice as well. And I appreciate your reminder to our listeners and watchers since we spent most of last year talking about justice that the people who get to define what justice is are the people who were impacted. And so it's not a it's not a top-down conversation. It is a community up conversation. And I know that was part of what you worked on in Sierra Leone as well. I want to move us to the lightning round since we are in our last few moments of this conversation. I think, and I start off the lightning round with each guest with this question, what do you wish people were paying more attention to? What are, what are you worried about? What are you seeing that you don't think is, is really that strong in the public consciousness yet? Well, right now, to be honest with you, I think there's a great deal of public consciousness. This is the first time in my experience, uh, having done this for decades, is that we do have the world absolutely focused and horrified. And so the concern that I have is over time that we just start walking away from it. I don't think so at this point, but that's why I've been kind of subtly suggesting that we need to take this political moment and run with it and build something that we can work on as opposed to let the world drift away for whatever reason. So my, that's my concern uh, uh, is that we lose the moment and the world drifts away. But I don't think so, not this time, uh, because uh, uniquely, and this is uniquely in modern international criminal law, we have a world that's outraged. We should be outraged for the, uh, for the, uh, the Uyghurs. We should be outraged for the Rohingya in uh, Myanmar, et cetera, et cetera. We should be outraged for the wonderful people and, and the victims of Syria, et cetera, et cetera. But again, the political moment is saying that we are outraged by what's happening in Ukraine and we should seize it to build the, a justice mechanism to make sure that people are held accountable and support the International Criminal Court. So that's, you know, that's in general, my, my concern is we're just going to, uh, you know, this, this incredible moment, uh, we'll lose it. We had, had spoken last year about the, how the age of accountability gave way to the age of the strongman. Do you think this is potentially a shift back to a, a new age of accountability? I hope so. I think so, perhaps. I think that uh, uh, Putin uh, blew it. He, uh, he did something that caused the world to come shoulder to shoulder where in a, in a situation where the world wasn't coming shoulder to shoulder dealing with atrocity, there was very little political will to do so, not anymore. So I think that this is, again, a moment. This is a moment for the International Criminal Court to show its validity, what it was designed to do, to step up and deal with the gravest of crimes. This is it. Uh, but this is also a time moment for the United Nations the General Assembly to also step forward. If we, if we do this right, I think we will see a, a, a different age other than the strongmen, because the strongmen around the world will, will realize that uh, they, have to use the, they have to follow the rule of law, not the rule of the gun. And then the last question really is because I always like to leave our listeners and watchers with other, other things to think about. So do you have any suggested people or news sources or podcasts or anyone that you would recommend for people who want to understand more about this, um, whether that be the conflict itself or the rules governing uh, what may move forward? Any suggestions for, for whom they should be looking at? 
Well, the one thing is, is that uh, thank heaven for Google, uh, because you can really access some really valid and important non-governmental organization efforts, as well as uh, come to, up to speed with what the International Criminal Court is doing, as well as what the United States is doing in its leadership to create the special court for Ukraine, what have you. So I, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, there are one of the things you have to be careful of, and when we we, we started the Syrian Accountability Project a month after uh, Aleppo uh, or Dara, uh, uh, back in 2011. Uh, and then within a year, uh, NGOs, there was a plethora of NGOs doing conflicting and uncoordinated things. And it became almost a cottage industry, quote, gathering data. That's also a real challenge as well. But you, you have your tried and true experienced NGOs that are doing some important, incredible work from Human Rights Watch to, I mean, all the, all the UN family of organizations, as well as NGOs that have credibility, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, you've got the American Bar Association, the International Bar Association, uh, you've got the Public International Law and Policy Group, you've got the Global Accountability Network, et cetera. These are experienced long-term NGOs who have a professional staff who, who are using tried and true methodologies by which to, to follow along and to, uh, and to support and or uh, read up on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we do have uh, for our listeners a great deal of, uh, of, of, of information for them. And please, I, would, I just urge, don't give up on this. This has to happen. We can't walk away from what is happening in the Ukraine or we are going down a very, very dark path. I'm hopeful. I am really excited about what the world has done, what NATO is doing, what Europe is coming together with. And I think we're going to, uh, we're, I think we're moving in the right direction, but don't let it not happen another way and be a part of it in whatever way you can. All right. So I would like to thank our audience for joining us today. Please join us for our next Tea Time, which will be on Thursday, April 28th at 3 p.m. Eastern. And we'll be talking about diversity in the United States judicial system. And David, thank you so very much for joining me for Tea Today. And sharing this very topical conversation. And we, we also hope we know that there's a lot of work to do, but uh, we will keep this front and center as part of the Jackson Center's work as well. My pleasure. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center, and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice, and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.